Welcome to Hollywood in Color, a new podcast telling the stories of the stars usually left out of entertainment history. The people of color in front of and behind the camera who have been representing for over a century. I'm your host, Diana Martinez. Called the Mexican Spitfire, actress Lupe Vélez didn't really play real people. She was always a symbol of foreignness, of sexiness, of passion and craziness. Sometimes she even played up those ideas of herself. Lupe was a consummate performer, a comic, an imitator who was well aware of the airs taken on by movie stars because she studied them closely. She did a great Greta Garbo impression, a funny and somewhat annoying Shirley Temple, but her most uncanny take was her Dolores Del Rio. As Lupe's contemporary, both women were successful film actors in Hollywood in the mid-1920s to the early 1940s, making the difficult transition from silent to sound film, though Dolores was far and above the more respected actress. When Dolores finally honed her image, she had morphed from a dowdy bit player to the reigning Spanish queen of American cinema. Dolores wasn't Spanish. Like Lupe, she was Mexican. And Lupe seemed to think this Euro play was pretty funny. In publicity photos, Dolores was often pictured in lace shawls and dresses with elaborate ruffled trains. And when Lupe did her impressions of Dolores, she would grab a kitchen towel or a scarf or a tablecloth and wrap it around her head, stand up very straight, put on a serious face and glide from one end of the stage to the other, her head held high. Lupe was suggesting Dolores was conceited and cold and Dolores thought Lupe was, well, it's hard to say. Proper ladies don't speak of such things. Whether or not she actually had a feud with her, Lupe certainly liked to tease Dolores whenever she could, probably because Dolores, unlike Lupe, was rarely the butt of a joke. But while Lupe, the persistently stereotyped and sexualized star, may have seen Dolores as a pretentious woman held in high esteem, Dolores was also unhappy with the way Hollywood depicted her. She actively pushed back against this whitewashed version of herself. She pushed against Hollywood forcing her to leave behind her Mexicanidad, her Mexicanness, in order to be considered an insider. In this season, Dolores Del Rio and Lupe Velas's vexed relationship to each other and to the evolving Hollywood star system of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s take center stage. The stories of these stars, like the stories of, well, everyone, are inextricably linked to history, a context. And when it comes to Lupe and Dolores, it's hard to ignore how Hollywood movies, reviews, and fan magazines echoed the prevailing rhetoric about Mexico and Mexicans in Los Angeles at the time. 
they used coded language and not-so-coded language to evoke imagery of Mexicans as violent, poor, and unintelligent. And if that sounds familiar, it should. This season of Hollywood in Color digs deep on Lupe Vélez and Dolores Del Rio, two women whose lives and careers were framed by struggles within a burgeoning city that was trying so hard to come to terms with its colonial past. Hollywood films were the public forum for this reckoning, and Lupe and Dolores were a large part of that as public representatives of a group of people who were redefining what it was to be Mexican and newly American. But before we get to L.A. and Hollywood, we have to start in 1920s Mexico, where Lupe and Dolores grew up and found their love for performance. From there, we'll follow Lupe and Dolores as they make their way to Hollywood and taste their first sips of stardom. This is episode one of Lupe Vélez and Dolores Del Rio, Las Reinas, the Queens of Los Angeles. Hollywood has often used non-white actors to add colorful storylines to their films. Dolores and Lupe played gypsies and prostitutes, dancers, and fallen women. They played Mexican, Greek, French, Native American, Spanish, Polynesian, and so many other races and ethnicities. And these roles, for a lot of other actresses, didn't lead to starring roles. They didn't lead to acclaim, and they certainly didn't lead to power. But Dolores and Lupe were two of the most powerful actresses in Hollywood for at least 10 years. They were the preeminent Mexican actresses and became so after only months in Hollywood. Dolores made 29 films during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. She was a financial powerhouse. At one point, she was one of the top 20 highest paid actors, negotiating a $5 million contract with the studio United Artists. But eventually, Hollywood became a difficult place. She lost roles to women like Katherine Hepburn and Barbara Stanwyck, white women with affected accents that represented the liberated woman of the pre-code post-World War I era. Dolores would later return to Hollywood in the 1960s after a successful career in Mexico's cinematic golden age, where she was called the First Lady of Mexican Theater. This reputation and an enduring beauty cemented her place in Hollywood history. If you've heard of any Mexican actress from this time, it's probably Dolores. Lupe starred in 45 feature films, most of them comedies. She had impeccable comedic timing and an outgoing personality that made her perfect for screwball slapstick. She made films with Hollywood's most acclaimed directors, including D.W. Griffith, Victor Fleming, Todd Browning, William Wyler, Cecil B. DeMille, and Gregory Cava. She starred alongside Laurel and Hardy, Douglas Fairbanks, Gary Cooper, Lon Chaney, Gilbert Rowland, and John Barrymore. But the coming of sound made it difficult for her to get roles that didn't just use her accent as a joke. 
She could do so much, and it wasn't until the 1940s with the Mexican Spitfire series that she took front and center, the star of her own franchise. But audiences, American and Mexican, then and now, wonder, are these films making fun of her too? And is she in on the joke? Lupe is rarely in film history books. She is more likely to show up in anything about Hollywood's scandal because her life was often used for tabloid fodder. She wasn't respected like Dolores, but she should be because both of them achieved something really rare for actresses of color at the time. Actually, something that's rare for actresses of color even now. Lupe and Dolores were stars. When, in 1925, Dolores and months later Lupe arrived in Los Angeles, they arrived to a newborn Hollywood. At the time, it had been little more than a decade since Cecil B. DeMille made his directorial debut with The Squaw Man, the first feature-length film shot entirely in Hollywood. And it had been only two years since the famous Hollywood land sign had gone up on Mount Lee, a sign meant to advertise an upcoming real estate development. In the 1910s, directors flocked to Los Angeles from the East Coast looking for the ideal conditions for film production. LA was perfect. Not only was its mild weather great for on-location shoots all year round, California's varied landscape provided endless backdrops for any movie they could think of. It had mountains, ocean, desert, and forest. It didn't cost much for directors to set up shop. Land was cheap and labor was too, given the influx of immigrants also settling in Southern California. In the 1880s, there was an immigration boom. People began moving west from the Midwest. Large groups of immigrants from Russia, China, Japan, Italy, and the Philippines sought work picking oranges, lemons, lettuce, berries, melon, and tomatoes, or working in oil fields, shipyards, or road construction. But for Mexicans, California was also the nearest refuge from a country in turmoil. In the late 1890s, the Mexican president Porfirio Diaz had a weakening hold on the country, where once he was celebrated for revitalizing Mexico's sluggish economy by stirring foreign investments, People in rural areas, which composed about 70% of Mexico's population, came to resent Diaz for selling them out. They were ousted from public lands, and those millions of acres were bought up by the Hearst family, Texaco, the Continental Rubber Company, and the American International Land and Mining Company, among others. 22% of Mexico now belonged to someone else. A similar thing even happened on a smaller scale. Diaz's friends were appointed mayors and community leaders. They were compensated handsomely while also skimming a lot off the top of the earnings of their workers. 
Anger and discontent resulted in the prevailing slogan of the day, Mexico para los Mexicanos. Mexico for Mexicans. In 1910, Diaz, who, though president, had been ruling like a dictator, promised a fair and free election. But somehow, he didn't realize he would have to deliver. He was alarmed at how quickly his opponent, Francisco Madero, became a symbol for democracy and freedom, especially because Madero, who was a short, balding, mild-mannered, squeaky-voiced rich guy, didn't exactly appear to have the gravitas necessary to galvanize a nation. But the Porfiriato, Diaz's regime, severely misunderestimated Madero. He was popular. So Diaz made sure Madero's political rallies were invaded and that the press didn't print a peep about supporting his opposition. He also put Madero in prison on charges of inciting a riot. Diaz, not surprisingly, won the so-called election. Madero was set free, and that's when he began to plan. Madero fled the U.S. where he had allies. From there, he called for an armed insurrection against the Porfiriato. It would be a battle between the poor and the very, very rich. Though not everything went according to plan, on November 1910, Months after Diaz's rigged victory, the Mexican War, or how it's now known, the Mexican Revolution, began. In an interview with Screen Secrets fan magazine, Lupe gave a candid account of growing up in the throes of revolution. She creates a vivid portrait of a young girl who grew up fast, surrounded by images of war. She says, people love Lupe, but they do not understand her. Perhaps it is because I am born in the revolution. When your American kids go to kindergarten, I am riding with my father in the Mexican army. I see the horse of my brother shot from beneath him. I see many men try to kill my father. I see my father kill other peoples. One day, four men stand up before an old wall with holes made by many guns in it. Four other men stand 50, 100 feet away from them with big guns. They shoot them down like so many ducks when you go hunting. I watch, and then I climb upon my pony and go along behind my father and my brother. I am five, maybe six years old. It is my first school, this revolution. I do not cry. I do not have goose pimples on my flesh. I do not have fears of the bullets. Looking back on these years, Dolores once said, I remember the sudden revolution that brought an explosive end to my peaceful existence. And yes, prior to the war, Dolores and Lupe both led carefree, privileged lives.
Maria Dolores Asunsolo Lopez Negrete was born in Durango, Mexico on August 4, 1904. Dolores was lovingly referred to as Lola, or Lolita, by her doting mother. With her puppy, she would run through her backyard garden or through the mulberry trees at a nearby park. She would often ride a horse-drawn carriage to church or local events with her parents. Her childhood was pretty idyllic. When war broke out, Dolores was six years old. Hidden in a basket, her mother Antonia carried her to the train station that would take them from Durango to Mexico City in the south. Mexico City was farther away from the fighting led by fellow Durangueño, the revolutionary Pancho Villa. Dolores's dad, the director of the Bank of Durango, stayed behind for a while. Dolores's family lost some, but not all, of their fortune. And though Francisco Madero was her mother's cousin, they didn't support the revolution that had displaced them from their home and their way of life. But their life in Mexico City was still pretty good, a testament to how deep their wealth and reputation ran. Dolores was sent to a convent school where she studied French, ballet, and Spanish dance with renowned teachers. There, she discovered she was quite a talented dancer. In fact, Dolores was so good at dancing that it would change the course of her life more than once. The first time came in 1920, when Dolores was 16 and she was invited to perform at a benefit. Her character was only known as the Sorrowful One in a production called The Cruel Orchid. One of the artistic directors of the play was Jaime Martinez del Rio, who also played the role of the pugnacious prince. Jaime was rich, 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 eligible and heir to a cotton empire. At 34 years old, he had traveled much of Europe, had a brilliant education in England, and an interest in the arts. Cotton didn't interest him, and after he met Dolores, nothing else interested him much either. I will marry that woman or I will die, he proclaimed to his cousin. But it wasn't all twittering birds and love songs. Jaime's mom was torn. Dolores' family was well-to-do, but provincial. Jaime came from Spanish nobility. But Jaime was also 34 and needed to find someone quick before gossip ran amok about his perpetual bachelorhood. In the end, she begrudgingly agreed to the marriage. Depending on who's writing history, the Mexican Revolution ended in 1917 with the signing of a new constitution, or 1920 when President Álvaro Obregón was elected, or 1924 with the election of President Plutarco Elias Calles. Some even argue the revolution didn't cease until the early 1940s. But when Dolores and Jaime returned from their honeymoon in 1922, Mexico was most definitely still in flux. It was dangerous outside. The economy had changed. Jaime and Dolores had an increasingly difficult time maintaining their lavish lifestyle, and Jaime grew increasingly dissatisfied with his new role as plantation manager. Their artists' souls were slowly being crushed by the pressures of responsibility, economy, and what may have been called ongoing war. 
But sometimes, Dolores would still dance. Not for money, because that would be very frowned upon, but for friends at parties. And Jaime encouraged her because that meant he could also go to parties and sometimes talk to artists, actors, and other performers and feel like maybe they were alive again. In 1923, one of Jaime's friends introduced the couple to Edwin Carew, a director on honeymoon in Mexico. To entertain the couple, Jaime played the piano and Dolores danced. Edwin was transfixed. He confidently announced that he could make her a star, the female Valentino, referring to Rudolph Valentino, an Italian actor who made a stardom leveraging his quasi-non-Anglo looks into starring roles as exotic, sensitive men. Dolores was giddy and flattered, Jaime was so ready to get out of Mexico. They could have their old lifestyle back. She would act and he could write her something, and they would be happy. Of course, Jaime's family couldn't think of anything more beneath him. Dolores' mom, though, supported her wholeheartedly. So just a few months after meeting Carew, the couple set off for La La Land. Maria Guadalupe Villalobos, Lupe for short, was born on July 18, 1908, in the Mexican city of San Luis Potosí. As a kid, Lupe was a little bit of a show-off. She would perform for family, friends, passers-by, anyone really. Lupe was fascinated with playing pretend. She loved actors and often snuck off to the theater to see them get ready backstage or watch them perform from the wings. She would wear her mother's stockings or borrow her brother's clothes to transform herself into someone else. In a 1929 interview, Lupe talks to a reporter about her love for the movies. She says... I do not know when I see my first movie, five, maybe six. I come home and they say, Lupe, how do you like it? I do not tell them. I can say nothing. It hurts here. She pressed both hands over her heart so forcibly that the imprint of her fingers remained on her chest. But from the time I see my first movie, she says, I am an actress. Lupe's love for acting also led to an interest in adventure and troublemaking. When she was 14, Lupe was sent to study at the convent school Our Lady of the Lake in San Antonio, Texas, but she wasn't there for very long. The Villalobos family was well-respected and pretty well-off. They could afford to send her to a Texas boarding school, for example. Lupe's dad was a colonel in the army. Her mother was a singer, and Lupe also had three sisters and a brother. The family lived comfortably in a big house with servants and money to spare. 
but her family was also not one of the wealthy landowners exploiting the poor. Though her dad and the rest of the men in his family were educated, they didn't attend the elite schools that would have given them actual status. There were rumors that Lupe would never live down, that instead of an opera singer, her mother was a burlesque performer. And whatever the truth, the Villalobos' sympathies lay with the agrarian class. So when the revolution came, Lupe's father, Jacobo, joined the fight on the side of the revolutionaries. Soon after she arrived at Our Lady of the Lake, Lupe received word that her dad was missing. He was maybe dead. Lupe's family used the last of their money to move to Mexico City. She joined them and got a job at a department store to help out. Eventually, her father was found, but then he was gone again, fighting a war that, according to history, should have ended by now. Lupe didn't seem to mind. She was happy providing for her family, but she knew that she had talents that could make actual money, a lot more money. She was energetic and outgoing. She dared to sing even though she was untrained, and dancing was her passion. She knew she could make it big on stage. Mexican Revista Theater, as it was called, was a spectacle of beautiful, talented women. The performers, or tiples, were cheeky and sassy and respected. They did musical numbers, dances, comedy bits, and Lupe had to be a part of it. But though her father, because he was gone a lot, couldn't tell her what not to do, he did still have an opinion about Lupe's new chosen career. He told her that no daughter of his was going to sully the name of Villalobos by being on stage in skimpy outfits, shaking it for everyone. So, when Lupe made her stage debut on February 28, 1925, she used her mother's maiden name. The Roaring Twenties had cut through the fighting and reached Mexico. Lupe was known as La Tiplecita Jazz, or the Little Jazz Singer. Lupe was only 17, small and very thin, but she fit into the image of the Jazz Age girl, the flapper. La chica moderna whose square-cut dresses emphasized lean, almost androgynous proportions. She had a madcap presence that delighted audiences. These vaudeville shows were often frequented by wealthy Mexicans and tourists from America. At one of her performances, she was scouted by actor Richard Bennett, who wanted her as the lead for his film, The Dove. This was Lupe's chance. She was going to Hollywood. In episode two of this five-part series, you'll learn more about Dolores' path to becoming Hollywood's foremost Mexican actress. 
We'll discuss her image and the roles that cemented her within the American cultural imaginary, but also work to deny her the status of an American. With all the groundwork we cover today, we'll dive deeper into why and how Mexican Dolores became the model Spanish Senorita, and see how her story is also bound up with the rise of Los Angeles, the city that makes dreams come true and creates myths out of nothing. This episode of Hollywood in Color has been produced, edited, and narrated by me, Diana Martinez. All artwork for the show was designed by Shelby Mooring, and you can find info about the theme song and other music used in this episode in the show notes. If you liked this episode and want to keep up with what's next, follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at hwoodincolor. And with that said, I can't wait to tell you another chapter of our story next week. Thank you.